going to be considering that passage that I read, a very familiar passage. Um, my wife informed me that I said the word Easter already. I think I said, I'm not going to say the word Easter this day. But you know what Easter is. It's actually a third or fourth century tradition, not found in scripture, namely, that we have to, a certain Sunday of the month, set it aside as a special commemoration of the resurrection. Matter of fact, scripture teaches us we ought to set every Sunday aside as a special commemoration of the resurrection. But it's fascinating that such an ancient tradition can still be like in our culture. It's still here. Go to, well, don't go on Twitter or Facebook, but if you did, you'd see people, he is risen, he is risen. You know, people that usually don't go to church, it's a cultural kind of thing to come to church on on this Sunday, everyone I'm speaking to normally goes to church, not just on Easter, but uh, there are people like that. It's, it's kind of fascinating to think about. Just a, a tradition started by Christians in the 3rd or 4th century still grips the social consciousness of many, many, many Westerners and others as well. Our passage deals with the resurrection uh, of our Lord, which means he died. We don't read about that in our text. Uh, He was dead. He was buried, but he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as he said, as our text says. If you remember our Lord, if you remember the Gospel of Matthew or any of the Gospels, it's historical accounts, records of how uh, the fact that our Lord existed and how he lived. So his, 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 his conception in the womb of the virgin by the power that came from on high, stirring up the waters within her and forming the incarnate Son of God according to his human nature within her. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, first of all, unseen by us in Mary's womb. He comes out of the womb. He lives as a young boy. You remember when our Lord was at the temple when he was 12, I had to be at my father's house. Uh, He grew in stature uh, and wisdom among men. They saw this boy. By the time he was 12 at the temple, remember when he was going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees? He knew a lot. He knew theological hot potatoes of the day. He knew how to use the scriptures of the Old Testament to, you know, we might say it, to, to win, to get people mad at him. But they were, the religious leaders, were misunderstanding the Old Testament, and so they didn't see the Lord of glory for who he was, the incarnate Son of God, as promised in the Old Testament. He suffered much. None of his sufferings were required. Well, all of his sufferings were required. Uh, What I mean by that is, that's what happens when you get off the notes, see? What I mean by that is this. He didn't deserve to suffer. He chose to. He chose to be one of us and experience all of the stages of life in a a sinful world in order that he might suffer primarily in an exclusive way while hanging on the tree, suffering or experiencing the wrath of God for us. But he suffered his entire life. He had things done said about him and to him that ought not to have been said about him or done to him over and over and over. Things 
came to him in his life experience that he did not earn or deserve, but he never sinned with those things that that came to him that he never earned or deserved. He never sinned. So he was always righteous the whole time. He suffered unto death, and then he was buried. Nobody took his life from him. He gives it up voluntarily, and he can take it again. In other words, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, like he said in John John uh, chapter 2. Well, this is what happened. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered the curse. The angel says he's not here. He is risen, just as he said. And so this text, in one sense, announces not the sufferings of Christ, but his glory. His, his resurrection is the first step or stage in the glorification of the Son of God. So he goes from a state of humiliation to a state of exaltation. And the first lap of that is this resurrection, this putting of his soul back in union with the self-same body it had been with that did not see corruption. By the way, three days is enough to start seeing corruption, and it didn't see corruption. Uh, in accordance with the promise of God through the prophet David in Psalm 16, by the way. Soul was brought back to the body, body animated by the soul, seen by others, and then ascends into heaven for his current session. So we have this text, 10 verses, and I'm not going to do a typical exposition of it. I wanted to kind of hone in on Matthew 28, 1 through 10, as this is the target, okay? This is the bullseye. This is the black center of a, of a archery target or something like that. The center is this, Matthew 28, 1 through 10. But Matthew 28, 1 through 10 doesn't come all by itself. If I had a whiteboard up here and I just put a big black dot on there, what would you say? You'd probably say if I said, what is that? You'd say, it's a whiteboard with a black dot, or it's a, it's a black dot, or something like that. But what if I then put a circle around the black dot? You would say, well, it's a black dot with a circle around it. Well, then what if I put another one? You might say, well, it's a black dot with two circles. And both the circles, neither of the circles are the same size. Well, what if I colored one in yellow and I colored the next one in red? You'd say, oh, that looks like a target, right? So our target, our, our bullseye actually of the target is Matthew 28, 1 through 10. And those other circles I'll call circles of context, right? Because we don't want to read Matthew 28, 1 through 10 like this, although some people read like that, okay? It was intended to be part of the written word of God, which starts actually at Genesis 1, 1, and ends in Revelation 22. So I want to do this circles of context thing. Uh, Let's envision our bullseye as our text and then the other circles the various things that scripture teaches us elsewhere that helps us understand that this in fact is a bullseye uh, Matthew 28 1 through 10 so what about these circles of context first of all our passage is at the end of the gospel of Matthew that's pretty profound isn't it Matthew has 28 chapters this is in chapter 28 that's the end so there must be a story that leads up to this. And this, this is a, if you read the Bible, you know, this is like huge. We sh- you don't hear um, symbols crashing, but we should have 
at least metaphorically. While I was reading it, he is risen. This is a big event. He who was promised of old has come and has now entered his glory. That's a big thing. Uh, matter of fact, the, the Old Testament is reduced to the sufferings of Messiah and his entrance into glory, at least, I think, four times by the New Testament. What's the Old Testament all about? It's about the sufferings and glory of one who will come. Well, he has come. So it comes at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospels, all four of them, provide information on the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Second, Matthew's uh, circle of context, Matthew's gospel appears to be written by a Jew for Jewish evangelistic purposes. If you read Matthew's gospel, it has that flavor about it. It has what uh, we often call these fulfillment formulas. This happened in order that it might be fulfilled, that which the prophet said, and then they'll quote the Old Testament. That happens in Matthew many times. For example, here's the first fulfillment formula utilized by Matthew. Now, all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, that's Matthew 1.22. You know Matthew's gospel? You know that's over and over and over part of what's happening there. You know the other gospels? You know what happens there. What does that tell us? Whatever happened in the life history of our Lord Jesus Christ was actually prophesied about in the Old Testament. That which came about is fulfillment of promise. This is huge. God is being good on his word, in other words, with Jesus. Another part of this circle of context, there's another very important formula in the Gospel of Luke that helps us understand the resurrection of our Lord. Uh, And you guys know it very well because you sit under my preaching quite often. Remember in Luke 24, after the resurrection, the Lord says, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. That's the written Old Testament. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory, sufferings and glory? Was it not necessary by virtue of what the prophets spoke, which means wrote? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. If you keep reading in that same passage, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. So I'm trying to put this resurrection passage in a context. When Jesus was on the earth, he's saying, look, this is after the resurrection in in Luke 24, 44 through 46 here. He's saying, before my death and resurrection, I, I spoke the same thing. I taught the same thing. I'm a broken record. I never cease to tire of reminding you of things that I've already taught. It's my justification for saying basically the same thing every week. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures of the Old Testament. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. By the way, it is not written in those words any place explicitly. Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. But the Old Testament teaches that in different words. Thus it is written, though in different words. Sufferings and glory. Sufferings and rise again from the dead the third day. The apostles all heard these words, including Matthew. Our Lord's resurrection is his entrance into glory, and upon ceasing his sufferings. So he has this terminus of sufferings, 
his sufferings terminate or find their glorious climactic end on the cross itself. Then comes this resurrection from the dead, his entrance into glory according to his human nature. Both Paul and Peter take up this sufferings and glory motif uh, in their writings and and, uh, sermons. He would suffer unto death due to our sins. Then he would be rewarded for his obedience by being raised from the dead. So when we read the passage, he is written. Did you immediately think, wow, he's being rewarded for his obedience? You might have, but not by virtue of just reading Matthew 28, right? See what you just did? If you did that, when I was reading that going, this is a reward. He was raised for our justification. That's what was happening there. It was the divine verdict. It was heaven, capital H, heaven's stamp of approval to the obedience of the incarnate Son of God. He was rewarded for what he did. If you were thinking that, you know what you were doing? You were thinking theologically, weren't you? You were importing other truths that shed light on what was really happening in this event, this historical event that's just narrated for us without theological mechanics. You were being a theologian, and if you were thinking that way, you were being a good one. So um, give me a fist after the sermon or something. There's nothing wrong with that as long as what we're importing into the text, God told us in his word. And he does tell us in his word more about the resurrection after it happens in terms of the theological implications of it. So you see what happens when you do this bullseye, Matthew 28, 1 through 10, and then you start asking questions from scripture itself. You know, what preceded this? Well, his sufferings unto death. What preceded that? The promise that he would suffer and do what? Enter into glory. What is this? His entrance into glory. What does that have to do with me? We'll get there, maybe. So this means this about Matthew. Since Matthew heard the Lord say what he said in Matthew 24, Matthew knows more about the resurrection theologically and in relation to the Old Testament Then he records for us in Matthew 28, 1 through 10. You understand what I'm saying? Matthew doesn't tell us everything he knows about the resurrection in Matthew 28, 1 through 10. It's just a little sliver of a redemptive historical act of God. And all he's doing, he's narrating what happened with reference to these women, with reference to, of course, our Lord, this angel, and our Lord in relation to the women, and all that. It's just a narration. doesn't have all the theological mechanics explaining everything, like, who is this one who is risen? It's the word made flesh. How do you know Matthew didn't say that? We could say, well, God told me it's the word made flesh. God speaks to you? Yes, every time I read the Bible. So, Matthew actually knew more than he tells us in Matthew 28. You want to know the technical way to say it? Okay, somebody nodded their head yes, so I'll say this. His cognitive, his mental, peripheral vision, okay, that which he knew was wider than that which he wrote. If you understand what, that, what I meant by that, it'll help you read the Bible. You don't go to a text and say, well, it doesn't say that, so therefore it can't be true. What if God tells us elsewhere, he is risen, means the entrance 
into the new creation, the first citizen of the new creation, the first fruits of, of great harvest to come. What if God tells us elsewhere that's actually what happened when he was ra- raised from the dead? The first citizen of the new creation walked on the face of the earth. Well, if that's true, then it's true whether Matthew tells us it's true or not. What Matthew tells us doesn't deny that. It just doesn't say it. But it entails it. It implies it. Why? How do we know? Because God tells us elsewhere. A fourth circle of context is the Gospels present to us the ministry of our Lord while on the earth. They present history to us, um, though certainly with a theological purpose and theological meaning, not always explicitly contained in the text, right? Sometimes it'll just give you a historical fact. He is risen. Paul does this. Christ died. Historical fact, right? I'm borrowing this from Machen, Gress, that guy. Okay? Christ died. Historical fact. For our sins. Theology. If we were there and we saw him die, we wouldn't go, wow, he's dying for our sins, unless somebody taught us that this is a vicarious substitutionary atonement. Like those words? That's the way Christians speak about the, the death of Christ. It wasn't by virtue of his own guilt that he's dying. He's assuming the guilt, the liability, the punishment upon himself, and he's doing what he's doing for others. But if we were there and we just saw it, we, couldn't, we wouldn't conclude that. Neither would we conclude, that's the incarnate Son of God suffering under the wrath of God, unless somebody told us, right? So these historical events are theologically pregnant, full of theological meaning, but not in and of themselves. They don't preach themselves. There's a lot of people that saw Jesus, heard Jesus, and they didn't conclude orthodox things about him. Matter of fact, in the Luke 24 passage I just read, it says, then he opened their understanding. Okay? It takes more than just facts. And it takes more than just facts and the explanation of the facts. It takes... God bringing the facts to our souls with effective and changing power. A fifth circle of context is after the events recorded at the end of Matthew's gospel occur. The face of the world is changed forever. Okay, we're putting this in context. We're doing mostly backwards. Old Testament, his life. What about after his resurrection? Because that's a context as well. Okay. The implications of his resurrection. I'm saying the face of the world was changed forever. I've said this before. Why are we here on Sunday? Because this historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, rose on the first day of the week. Upon his resurrection, our Lord had various post-resurrection appearances Then he ascends to heaven as he promised he would. He sends the Spirit at Pentecost as he promised he would. Then the gospel, the good news about what God has done in in light of our sins is propagated first in Jerusalem, then to the Gentile world of the first century, and churches are born just as our Lord predicted. 
The book of Acts records for us the ascension, Pentecost, the spread of the gospel, and the establishment of local churches. The epistles and revelation give us the apostolic interpretation or doctrine of the sufferings and glory or resurrection, ascension, and current session of our Lord as they affect our Lord's body, the church, right? A lot happens before he is risen, but a lot happens right after he is risen. So, Hopefully you're able to see now that our passage in Matthew comes to us in various circles of context. It comes to us upon our Lord's death, even death upon a cross, where he voluntarily suffered divine wrath against human sin and its guilt. It comes to us at the end of our Lord's earthly ministry. It comes to us in a book which is highly dependent upon what Moses and the prophet said would take place. It comes to us as the hinge upon which many things would change. Here's some other things the fact that he is risen um, has brought about. The resurrection brings great change for God's people. No longer are there earthly animal sacrifices, a temple, and three annual festivals to be held in Jerusalem. We go from the physical temple in Jerusalem to Christ and his church as temple. We go from physical sacrifices to spiritual sacrifices. This has to do with both his death and resurrection. We go from an exclusive priesthood among God's people to God's new people constituting the priesthood of the formally inaugurated new covenant. We go from the sacred day of rest on Saturday to Sunday, the Lord's Day, which is a celebration of the fact that on the first day of the week, our Lord entered his rest, having completed his work of establishing the foundation of the new creation. The resurrection affects everything. Remember, ripple effect even to this day in our life goes back to what? First day resurrection of the Son of God. He's not there. He's risen. Just as he said. Those just as he said words are important, and we'll, we'll get to them maybe here in a minute. So our text presents a brief glimpse of history. Okay? This is a, a narrative of a historical event that took place. It is an historical account about the announcement of the resurrection of our Lord by an angel. When you read through this, and an angel shows up, connected to the angel's descent from heaven is an earthquake. Good Bible readers are going, drum roll, please. This is huge. God doesn't do earthquakes and angels for no small, trite reasons. Something huge is about to take place. But given that it is, this is redemptive history that is presented, it is filled with theology. It's not just a historical account of something that happened. It's something God did on the earth that is pregnant with meaning, meaning of which he must tell us, and he does elsewhere, praise him. Our text is telling us about what God affected on the earth with reference to the incarnate son who was dead due to our sins. That's pretty big. He has risen. The Son became man for us and for our salvation. And the scriptures exist to tell us that he has done just that. Why do we have a Bible to tell us that he is, not only is, is he risen, but he assumed our nature and duties in order to bring us to God? Why do we have a Bible? Because God has a plan of redemption. So reading gospel passages requires us to read them theologically. I was just trying to do that a little, even though they present historical facts to us. 
Well, considering Scripture, while there are clear doctrinal sections, we must never think that the recorded history is not theological. He's not here. He's risen just as he said. Okay, that's recorded history. But if you kind of peel the layers of the onion to get down to what's happening here, there's so much happening here. Who raised this dead one? Well, according to what he himself said, if you destroy his temple, if you cause the separation of soul and body to be experienced by me, John 2, Jesus said, I'll raise it up in three days. What? Who has the power to raise himself from the dead? Matter of fact, he said, no one takes my life from me. I give it up. They took his life from him. In quotes, in case you're listening. So it's very theological. The history records acts of God which reveal God, though we must be careful not to read our own self-conceived theology into the texts, these historical texts, I think it is right and appropriate to interpret the Gospels theologically. Matter of fact, if we didn't have people interpreting the Gospels and other parts of Scripture theologically, we wouldn't have such a rich hymnody. Why do we love our hymns so much? Because they're bibbling. Are they expounding one text every single time? No, they're putting a lot of truths together, making them collate and speak one message, all from, hopefully, the written Word of God. So that's what I'm trying to do here. So let me say one more thing before I offer a homiletical reading of this text, because we have to get to the text here at some point. But let me say one more thing. More is true about the events and persons described in this, in this text than the text tells us. Right? There's more going on behind the scenes here. We're not... We're not told who this person is who is risen, except that it's Jesus. We're not told that it is the second person of the Trinity having assumed our nature, uh, duties, and liabilities, who is in the business of bringing many sons to glory. But we know that's true because God tells us elsewhere. So there's more true about the events and persons described in the text than the text tells us. For example, the he of he has, he has risen is none other than the incarnate Son of God and has risen. He has risen refers to an act of the Trinity. Oops. Why do I say that? Because on the one hand, Jesus said during his earthly ministry, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. On the other hand, there are times when Jesus said he must suffer, he must die, and he must be raised from the dead. What does that mean? He's not the only agent of his resurrection. By the time we get over to the epistles, we realize Ah, the Father raised the Son. But in the Gospels, the Son's going to raise the Son. And in the Epistles, we're also told, the Spirit has raised the Son. A one divine act of resurrection by these three persons 
uh, affecting the resurrection. So that's not told us in the text, but we know it's true. Because more is true about the events and persons described in the text does not mean we should not read the text the way I'm suggesting. This is the case because the circles of context exercise I conducted earlier is it's the gut reaction of most just common Christians. It's not what most academics teach in the seminaries except a seminary we know and love, and others. The method I just taught you is the method of scripture interpretation that brought about the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Statement, all the great Reformation and post-Reformation catechisms and confessions of faith. But if you jump from the 17th century into the 18th and 19th century, the academic model changes The Bible isn't this coming from God through prophets and apostles to us. It's this. It's men writing about their religious experiences. Ancient Jews, the Old Testament. Ancient Christians, the New Testament. The Bible's like any other book, and it's to be interpreted like any other book. We don't like that here. No, it's not like any other book. It's the written word of God. It's infallible. It's authoritative, and it reveals to us the plan of salvation, and it has ultimately one author, so it's not like any other book. So having done that, I have some competition. I will win. I have electricity. I have the microphone. So now I want to take you through the text. Finally, uh, theological reading or preaching of the text. I'm going to insert, I'm going to read the passage, okay? I'm going to insert comments. I've done this before. I think I've done it with this passage a few years ago. But I also have done it with Genesis 22. Nobody remembers. But I read Genesis 22, inserting John Gill's comments Almost the whole sermon. It was quite refreshing for me. Gil did all the work for me. I'm going to do a similar thing. And we'll start reading this uh, in accordance with... Uh, th- this, is not, this is just Christian, generic, theological stuff, okay? I'm not making stuff up. I didn't invent these things that I'm going to say. Uh, Christians throughout the history of the church would say amen to all this as far as I I could tell. So, we'll start with the words. Now after the Sabbath. Now this was the last day of the week, remember? From creation to the resurrection, the earth's first last day of the week was the day God rested from his work of the first or old creation. That's actually important. The first seventh day of the week The first last day of the week is the day God rested. The first first day of the first creation is the entrance into rest by the incarnate Son of God. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, so we're going from the seventh to the first. Now we went from seven all the way back to the creation account. Let's go from 
first day all the way to the creation count. What happened on the first day of the week? We're called that the first day of the first week in Genesis 1 is the day that light pierced the darkness of the original creation before the fall into sin. Remember that? That actually becomes important, first day theology. There's a hymn we sing that starts the first day theology right there in, in the, the first, day, first day of the week of creation. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's actually an echo of Genesis 1-3. Paul's words come to us after our Lord's resurrection and are a theological interpretation of his work as it is applied to souls. Just like in the first creation, God said, let there be light. So in the new creation, God says, let there be light in your soul. And what happens? You see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then we have this. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Graves are because sin is and God threatened death to Adam and executed it once he sinned. Death spread to all men because all sinned, right? Populated graves are a constant reminder of sin, but as we'll learn, this grave is unoccupied. It is vacant Because vacated, something's different here. A vacated tomb, a grave, a place where a corpse was put, and now that corpse is no longer there. Not only is it no longer there, because somebody could have just taken it, right? Remember, remember they said, look, somebody's gonna, somebody's gonna mess with this grave. We better put some, some guards over it. You you do what you have to do to, well, that didn't stop the Son of God from, being raised from the dead. Verse 2, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. I already mentioned this, but could this have been a sign that God was about to execute a peculiar work? We're not going to take a vote, but if we did take a vote, I think it would be probably a 100% would say, this is not normal. I've read the Bible. You know, you know those shows? Don't watch them. But if you did where they promise all these miracles and all that stuff. Every day, every week, you know, claim your miracle. Read the Bible. Miracles are concentrated on, among men, uh, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles. Full stop, that's it. It's a long period of time. When miracles, when things outside the ordinary uh, ways of God occur, it's it's a way of God saying, listen up. Earthquakes, angels, this is not the norm. Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. So we see throughout Scripture, when God does important things on the earth, unique phenomena often accompany them. Sounds, lightning. Here, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. So here's an angel, a sent messenger from heaven at the empty grave of our Lord on the first day of the week. The earthquake came along with the angel announcing his presence. Still, well, 
Verse 3, and his appearance was like lightning and his garment as white as snow. Okay, so that's most likely uh, borrowing from Daniel 10. This, this is radiance about this creature that has been sent to serve. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So the peculiar presence and brilliance of the angel shook the men and affected them. Um, that's just an angel. So scripture readers that are recalling weird visions that people had, remember whenever somebody had a, a quote-unquote vision of God, some sort of manifestation of God was given to them, what did they do? They sold tickets, right? They started a circus. I fell as a dead man. You know, I am a man of unclean lips. This is an angel, and a similar thing is being um, recorded for us here. The angel answered and said to the women, women, do not be afraid. So the angel reveals a little about himself here. He is seeking to bring comfort, not terror. Do not be afraid. I'm here to comfort you. Remember, he descended from heaven, so he doesn't belong to Satan, Satan and his angels. This is not a satanic angel or a demon. Um, you know who else has angels? The mediator. He's going to come with his angels. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. How did he know that? This is interesting. Somehow, someway, angels ha- this angel has, had revealed to him the information of things that were occurring on earth. And he knew they were looking for our Lord who had been crucified and died. Angels, by the way, as scriptures tell us, scripture tells us, long to look into the things related to the salvation our Lord brings to sinners. 1 Peter 1.12, remember that weird verse? Into which angels long to look. Into what? The salvation that the people had experienced that was promised by the prophets of the Old Testament. Angels, angels are theologians? Angels love Soteriology 101? Uh, I think that's a Twitter account. I, I don't even know if it's good or bad. But um, the, the fact is, yes, angels are students. They're creatures. You remember, and I've mentioned this before, according to Moses, angels were made to be peering over the mercy seat. If, uh, you can read this uh, later. Exodus 25, 19. There's several passages in, in, uh, in Moses where you got this mercy seat down here, which most commentators say somehow, some way, that is a type of him who was to come. And you got these angels looking down at it. I wonder if that's where Peter gets the language, angels long to look. Angels, by the way, are all over the place in one sense. Prior to the mercy seat, angels were present at the first creation of the terrestrial world, according to Job 38. Angels were present at the giving of the law, Galatians 3. An angel announced John the Baptist's birth and name. An angel repealed, excuse me, revealed to Joseph our Lord's conception by the Holy Spirit. The angel Gabriel announced our Lord's future conception to Mary. An angel reve- revealed to shepherds the birth of our Lord. 
Angels witnessed his passion, Luke 22. Angels worship our Lord in heaven now, Revelation 5, God and the Lamb. Angels serve him in various ways and will be with him when he comes again. It's a lot of angels around the Lord, isn't it? He who was vindicated in the spirit, Paul tells us, was seen by angels, 1 Timothy 3, 16. So the presence of an angel signifies to us that this is a really big thing that has happened, which the following words indicate. Finally, get to verse 6. He is not here. Don't those great words. For he has risen, just as he said. Now, I mentioned to you before that our Lord during his earthly ministry had told a disciple that he was going to be raised from the dead. Listen to Matthew 17, 22 and 23. It's one of the places where Matthew tells us what our Lord said about his resurrection prior to its occurrence. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That happened. They will kill him. That happened. He will be raised on the third day. This is what's being recorded for us. And the angel says, Come, see the place where he was lying. The angel had knowledge of what our Lord had said while on the earth. He is risen just as he said. The angel had knowledge of what the Lord had said during his earthly ministry. Isn't that weird? Did he read the Gospel of Matthew? No. How did he get that information? He read the Gospel of John. No. It was revealed to him somehow, some way. The angel had knowledge of what our Lord had said while on the earth and that he made good on his word, just as he said. Those are important words. An angel is telling these women, I know that Jesus said he was going to be raised from the dead, and he has been raised from the dead, just as he said. You know, remember the earthquake and the presence of the angel is a twofold drum roll, please. This is important. The angel knew our Lord entered into his glory. You think the angel knew that? Sufferings and glory? I think so. It seems like the angel knew that the women, too, had knowledge that our Lord predicted his resurrection. Hey, ladies, just as he said, it seems like he's assuming, oh, the ladies knew he said this. By the way, these are Christian women we're dealing with here. Verse 7, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. So the Lord had said he would rise from the dead, and now he is risen. But recall, our Lord said both that he would raise himself from the dead and be raised from the dead. Remember I brought that up before? That's a, a careful readers of the, of, the, of the Gospels will conclude. We have our Lord asserting, proclaiming. That he'll raise himself from the dead, John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Remember what verse 20 says? He was speaking of the temple of his body. John writes a little comment there. And Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be 
raised up on the third day. So there he seems to be the passive recipient of another of an agent. We're not told who it is. The resurrection of our Lord was affected by our Lord. And at least one other resurrecting agent. We would be good Trinitarian Christians, because all true Christians are Trinitarians, to say, well, there's actually three coefficient agents here, or one agency, three agents. The agency is the divinity, and the agents are the persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, executing divine power, bringing the human soul of our Savior back in union with the human body of our Savior, and rewarding his obedience with that union, resurrection, new life from the grave. This is the mystery of the Trinity, solves this dilemma. The resurrection is an act of the triune God. The Father raised the Son. The Son raised the Son. And Paul tells us in Romans 8, the Spirit raised the Son. So the announcement of the angel refers actually to a Trinitarian redemptive act of God. Could we say this? Therefore, Angels confess the Trinity, at least implicitly. My wife nodded yes. I agree with my wife. Are angels Trinitarian worshipers? Well, if their worship is accepted, then they have to be Trinitarian worshipers, right? How do they know the doctrine of the Trinity? Do they read the Bible? Some mode of revelation gets through to him that this God who made all creatures is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So this angel is a servant of our Lord. Our Lord has angels that do his service. This is nothing new to a scripturally informed mind. Verse 8. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. This is, uh, this is wonderful. And they departed quickly. Why? You think they might be a little excited? Like if you had some angels say, hey, no, don't mellow out. I'd say, I can't mellow out. First of all, you're here. Number two, an earthquake happened, which is a double dose from heaven that something important is going on here. It's so unnatural for you to tell me, don't fear. Of course I fear. They're all excited here. The dear women now become special servants or envoys or apostles of the, of the, of, of the angel, right? Of our Lord and the apostle of the angel as well. And behold, verse 9 says, before they fulfilled their commission, something happened. And behold, so they're... Excited, ready to go out and be apostles for the angel and our Lord. Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. It is as the angel had said. He's not there. He is risen, just as he said. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. This is, a, you know, this is an amazing scene. They worshipped him. They did not worship the angel, but they did worship our resurrected Lord. 
Which brings some questions to it, doesn't it? Did they worship him because he is man or because he is God? Just think about it. Did they worship him by virtue of his humanity? Did they worship him by virtue of his divinity? What do we all worship to? Creature or creator? Creator, right? By virtue of his divinity, he is to be worshipped. So it is appropriate to worship the Son of God incarnate as long as we distinguish. You think angels distinguish? I think they do. By the way, this assumes, this act of worship by these women assumes at least the seeds of an orthodox Christology, doesn't it? They knew, apparently, at least they thought they were right here, I can worship him. Now, if we sat them down and said, why are you worshiping him? They would say, he came out from the grave. But I think if they had more information, they could articulate. They could say, wait a minute, you guys had the whole Bible. I didn't have the whole Bible. But now that I read you know, the gospel accounts and the Acts and the epistles, um, I can worship him because this, this is the God-man. This is God assuming flesh. This is the divine second person of the Trinity becoming, assuming, taking to himself human nature in order that he might assume our duties and liabilities and bring us to God. This is, this is God manifesting himself in the flesh. So I think these ladies are Christian women. They believe our Lord is very unique. He's very man, yet, because they worship him, very God and so unique that he may and ought to be worshipped. That says a lot about these women, doesn't it? They worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. It's hard not to say, Lord, why'd you say that? So I'm not going to say it. Um, Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So our Lord gives a brief word of comfort after receiving worship from the women, then gives them an extra commission. The angel gave them a commission. Now the Lord gives them the commission, so they are apostles of both Jesus and the angel. So that is the walkthrough, the theological walkthrough. I do want to say this. I have a closing contemplation, and I need to remind myself which one I wanted to use for the first sermon, so I have to put my glasses on. Okay, here's our contemplation, and then we'll take a break. Our Lord became man for us and for our salvation. Did you see that in the text? No, but it's all assumed, isn't it? What is he doing, rising from the dead? Is this uh, something that he's doing as a private person just for himself? No, we're going, no, he's not a private person. He's a public person. He's a person who represents others. That's the whole reason for assuming our nature so that he could assume our duties and assume our liabilities on the cross. 
Our Lord became man for us and for our salvation. So he has this life of suffering obedience. And this suffering was due to our sins. And the obedience part is due to our lack of obedience. So everything he's doing, suffering and while suffering, obeying perfectly, is all for us. While suffering, he never sinned. We suffer, we sin. We get ticked off. Excuse me. And other things. He never sinned. He was righteous for us and for our salvation. From womb to tomb, perfect obedience for us and for our salvation while receiving things he shouldn't have received. Not only did he take our guilt upon himself and its punishment, he obeyed for us. And here's the next step. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. His resurrection benefits us as well. It is the reward for his obedience for us and for our salvation. What does that mean? Whatever God does to the mediator in virtue of his perfect obedience, he's going to do to the mediator's children. The mediator's personal perfect obedience, personal perfect obedience on behalf of others, Gained glory according to the human, his human nature. What are the mediator's children going to get? Glory? Why? Because we're good. We're a church, man. Because our soiled hand of faith went out and laid hold of that which was promised. We, we get what he gets because he got it for us. What God has done to the mediator, God has promised to do to those who believe in the mediator, except one special thing. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We don't get death as a penal or legal punishment. We get death as a portal to glory. He got death in our stead. As a legal, divine punishment. Do us, not him. The father raised the mediator. The son raised the mediator. The mediator raised the mediator. And all the mediator's children will be raised. But not for judgment unto condemnation. For as we are told in Scripture, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you envision Christ Jesus? Here he is in our nature. There he is on the cross. And there is this heaven's punishment coming upon him. And then you go to the last day and true believers have to experience the same condemning wrath of God. No double jeopardy. Divine justice was satisfied once for us and for our salvation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chastisement for our sins? 
Sure, fatherly love exhibited toward us in the way of, you know, spankings here and there because of our foolishness? Yes. But we also read this, and it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory, the status our Lord was endowed with upon his resurrection, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, even though I said what God does to the mediator, God does to the mediator's children. He doesn't do everything he did to the mediator, to the mediator's children. But he does do this. He suffers and then enters glory, and then we're going to gain that glory. We're going to gain it because it is deposited. It is given. It is donated to us. Hebrews 2.10 assures us that our Lord is the agent through whom many sons are brought to glory. You hear these verses almost every week. But if you're like me, you need to be reminded. I'm going to be brought to glory. I'm not going to earn glory. That, that changes the motive, should change the motivation of our heart when it comes to obeying God and fighting the lust that wage war against our souls. Paul tells us this in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, for our citizenship, that is believers, is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that's what we're in now, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Can we say in one sense that our Lord assumed a lowly body? He assumed a this age body. He was rewarded with a that age body. We, we come into existence in a this age body. We are going to get something that Paul calls conformity to his glorious body. According, well, let me, let me go back up who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the uh, due deserts of our righteousness for him. To the degree that we were goodies, goody two-shoes, to that degree we'll get this glorious body. Didn't say that. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. According to divine power. So, if you believe that our Lord suffered unto death for your sins and entered into his glory via his resurrection, I got good news for you. All of your sins are forgiven, and you have a title to glory that can't be erased or lost. You will one day be conformed to his glorious body. But I can also say this, if you do not believe these things, um, I plead with you to do so now. Son of God, assume my nature to assume my duties and to assume my liabilities on the cross. Heaven rewarded him, according to his human nature, with this glorified status that he is able to, by virtue of his divinity, confer upon others. And he will on the last day. But that last day blessing that will come to us actually starts in this life. We have the first fruits of that full harvest that comes not only in him, 
but in the grace that comes to us, that starts our process of renovation with our souls first, and then our souls get purified when they're absent from the body and present with the Lord, just souls made perfect, and then our body along with our soul gets it on the last day. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Please help us to love you, to love um, the scriptures and the truths of scriptures, but ultimately that we might love you more and that that would show itself in the way we conduct ourselves. Thank you for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Thank you that he, on that day, was not there. He had risen just as he said. Thank you for the veracity, the truthfulness of the word of God. Thank you for forgiveness of sins and righteousness in him. Thank you in his name. Amen.